Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. Appreciate you listening every week at this same time uh, to Bible Crossfire. While we're waiting on our first call, I thought we'd start out with John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Well, ask yourself this question. How is that an accurate description of Jesus Christ? How is Jesus the Lamb of God? Well, wouldn't he be the Lamb of God in the sense that he was sacrificed? That he was the sacrifice? In the Old Testament, you had physical animals, lambs, that were sacrificed for sin. But Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Jesus is the only effectual sacrifice. In that sense, he's the Lamb of God in that he is the sacrifice for our sins. Let's go back to the Old Testament and show that a physical animal, a lamb, was sometimes sacrificed for sin. For example, in the story of the Passover in Exodus 12, it says, verse 3, Speak you unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Verse 5 talks about it, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. But anyway, they were to sacrifice this lamb, take the blood, and put it up on their doorpost. What we got going on here, what we call the Passover, was, you remember when Moses led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, there were ten plagues that God put upon Egypt, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You had like uh, all the frogs and and the lice, and turning all the water to blood. And then the tenth plague would have been what we call the death of the firstborn. To me, that's the most terrible plague. The angel of death is going to come through, and the firstborn child of every family is going to die. So God instructs, through Moses, instructs the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb, as we're reading here, we read here in Exodus 12, verse 3. Put a little blood on the doorpost, uh, verses 5 through 7. And then when the angel of death came through, he would, quote, pass over that house when he saw the blood on the doorpost. We read down in verse 14, it says, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And so this was something that was later uh, kept as a yearly celebration by the Israelites, I guess, to celebrate the fact that they didn't lose their firstborn child because they knew to put the blood on the doorpost. When the angel of death came through, none of them lost their firstborn child, but all of the Egyptians, including the Pharaoh himself, lost their firstborn child. And so to celebrate this, they, they had the Passover feast every year to celebrate the fact they didn't lose their firstborn child. And this is the event that precipitated them being able to leave Egypt and to uh, leave that Egyptian slavery. And so we see, we could probably turn to uh, a dozen different places in the Old Testament and show that a lamb was sacrificed. But that's just one famous place. The lamb had to be without blemish, meaning it couldn't have a physical defect. You know, I'm kind of an efficient person. I tease my wife, I say, uh, we can't buy gas unless we need milk. We can't buy milk unless we need gas. And so if I'd have been a shepherd back then with, say, a hundred sheep and God had said, sacrifice one of them, I might have been tempted to 
take one of the sheep that's going to die the next day anyway, maybe one with three legs or is blind or is sick. But God is saying, no, no, that wouldn't be a sacrifice. I want you to take one of your best lambs. I want you to take one without blemish, without any physical defect. It's got to be a real sacrifice for you. Well, what we saw in John 129 is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice. If you have a Bible question or comment, why don't you give us a call? The lines are wide open at 877-655-6755. The number to call if you have a Bible question or comment is 877-655-6755. There's an interesting passage in the New Testament that refers back to this story of the Passover we see in Exodus 12. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. It says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So here the New Testament calls Christ our Passover. Well, how is he our Passover? Well, think of the analogy being made here. Back in Exodus 12, when the Israelites, uh, when the angel of death came through to take, to kill the firstborn child of every household, when he saw the blood on the door, he passed over that house. And here's the parallel. When it comes time for God to give out just retribution for our sins, God will pass over us because he sees the blood of Christ. He sees the blood of Christ. He passes over us. Of course, we're talking about people who trust and obey Christ. We have to trust and obey Christ to be passed over because of the blood of Christ. We learn that from many passages. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 says we got to know God and we have to obey the gospel to avoid the fl flaming fire vengeance that's going to happen on the judgment day. Mark 16, 16 says he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So you have to trust and obey God in order for God to pass over you because he sees the blood of Christ. And I think that's the parallel being made when Christ is called our Passover in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. You know a passage back in the Old Testament that talks about Jesus being a lamb is Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, it looks to start with at verse 5. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But we'll go ahead and try to see if we can take this call. James from Alabama, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Good evening, Patrick. Um, okay, so we, we, we know that the thief on the cross didn't have to be baptized because Christ's covenant was not in effect, correct? That's right, James. Hebrews nine fifteen through 17 shows that the, the testament is not a force till after the death of the testator. And the testator of the will, in this case, was Jesus Christ. So his New Testament will or law... The one that requires baptism didn't come into effect until after Jesus died. That's right, James. So how do we connect John the Baptist and all the people that he baptized before Christ even came to that well, covenant? Or that, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I think, I know. I hope I know what you're getting at. John the Baptist was not actually part of the New T Covenant or New Testament, and the baptism he embraced was not part of New Testament law or New Testament baptism. As a matter of fact, James, you may remember in Exodus 19, there were some people who had been baptized with John the Baptist's baptism after it, after it wasn't valid anymore, and, and they had to be rebaptized. baptized in, uh, 
verse 3 of Acts 19, James, it says, He said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? They said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So I'm assuming what happened here, James, is these folks were baptized with John the Baptist's baptism after the New Testament law went into effect. And by that time, John the Baptist's baptism wasn't valid anymore because it's not the New Testament baptism in the name of Christ. So they had to be rebaptized. Does that kind of get at what you're asking about, James? Yeah, but still, that's that's an assumption. We, I guess, we really don't know, then, do we? Uh, exactly. As, uh, as fact, what's the assumption? You know, I mean, well, well, you you're the one that said uh, you you assume that that's the correlation between both of them. I, I didn't. I didn't do that. I guess I, I'm clueless on the whole thing. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, why that baptism? I mean, I understand uh, the baptism uh, as John put it, but um, and if he baptized, they were baptized incorrectly, why, why would God use John the Baptist to baptize somebody and then have to get baptized again? Well, Here's what I would think I was saying, James. When when John the Baptist was doing the baptism, before Christ, baptism was in effect, their baptism was valid. It was for the remission of sins, Mark chapter 1, verse 4. And so it was valid at that time. The only people who had to be re-baptized, I'm convinced, James, is those who were baptized with John the Baptist's baptism after the New Testament law went into effect. After Jesus' oh. baptism went into effect. Then, you, you remember at the end of Acts 18, you had Apollos. He was preaching, but it says he knew only the baptism of John. And so Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Acts chapter 18, verse 26. So you might have had people who were taught by Apollos, like, for example, these in Acts 19. They were baptized with John the Baptist's baptism after Jesus Christ's baptism became valid. You see what I mean, James? Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're what you're saying, but you know that whole scenario still kind of implies that they were wrongly baptized because if they were these guys baptized, were these guys were wrongly baptized because they were baptized with the wrong baptism after Jesus's baptism went into effect. Let me let me mention something in Acts nineteen four again. So when they're talking about the baptism, it says. John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So John's baptism, what you had to believe to be baptized with John's baptism was that the Messiah was coming, okay? And that was a perfectly fine thing to, to believe when the Messiah hadn't come yet. But after Jesus has come and died and been resurrected from the dead... What do you have to believe after that to be a proper candidate for baptism, James? After Jesus has come and lived his uh, three years preaching and has died and been resurrected, what do you have to believe to be baptized with Jesus' baptism? Well, that Christ came and died for our sins, and uh, we are, yeah. our old sins had to be washed away. And that he was resurrected, uh, but, Romans 10. Right. Romans ten nine right. and ten said that I should all confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in that heart 
that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So back when John was baptizing, Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't been resurrected yet. So obviously they didn't have to believe that at that time. But now after Jesus has died and after he's resurrected, if they're still baptizing based upon the belief that the Messiah is coming, then they're not believing that Jesus was risen from the dead, as Romans 10, 9 requires. So it wouldn't be a valid baptism then. You see what I'm saying, James? Well, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. But the other part of that is, did not John also baptize for the repentance of sin? John did baptize for the remission of sins. So when him, he baptized, people received the remission of sins. They did. Okay. That's right. Then says get, that two then different places. Bapt- yeah, okay. But then people get, got baptized for the same remission of sin after after Christ came. That's right. And and some of those were they not did they not get rebaptized for nope. remission of sin, I, or is that just ones that were baptized in, with the wa- under the water? Okay. Kind the of ones thing. that were baptized when John the Baptist's baptism was valid got the remission of sins. They wouldn't have needed to be rebaptized. But the ones that were baptized with John the Baptist's baptism after that baptism was no longer valid, then they're not scripturally baptized, and so they had to be rebaptized in Acts 19 because they never were scripturally baptized. Because they okay. got John the Baptist's baptism, which means you're believing in the Messiah that's coming after the Messiah's already come and died and, and been resurrected from the dead, and they're not believing the right thing. Do you see what I'm saying, James? The distinction between so there, being there were, baptized there with John's baptism. Bapti- there were two different baptisms. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they the were one two before different and baptisms. the one after. Okay. Yep. All right. Okay. I understand. Once, All right. Thank you, Patrick. Once you get to yeah, Acts sorry, chapter two, once you get to Acts chapter two, John the Baptist's baptism would not be uh, valid anymore. So if somebody got baptized with John the Baptist's baptism after Acts two or after that then they would have an unscriptural baptism. Thank you for your call, James. Okay, so, one last question. I know you got other people call it. So, if the people that were baptized under John died before Christ passed, died, would they still go to heaven? Yeah, they, got, they, they were baptized for the remission of sins. They received the remission of sins. Okay. All right. Well, uh, okay. Thank you, Patrick. I'll, I'll talk to you uh, Wednesday. Thank you, Jane. Howard from yeah. Ontario. Go ahead with your Bible question or, com- or comment, please. My question is, the Bible tells us that God will never forsake us. So why is it that when Jesus was on the cross, why does he say, why have you forsaken me? Okay. The reason is, is because it's the same reason that God would never punish uh, one person for another person's sins, but with Jesus, he did. Jesus was punished for our sins. We were reading in Isaiah 53 a while ago, verse 5 says, talking about Jesus in a prophetic way, it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes, we are healed. And so Hmm. Jesus was punished, not for his own sins, but for our sins. So Jesus was forsaken by God, not because of what Jesus did, but because what we did. Mm-hmm. So in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, when when Jesus said, "My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me?" That mm-hmm. shows that God forsook Jesus, but not because of anything that Jesus did, 
but because of mm-hmm. our sins. Mm-hmm. Okay. But as long as okay. we're faithful to God, Hebrews 13 verse 5 teaches, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Mm-hmm. But, but interestingly enough, Howard, have you ever considered Second Chronicles chapter 15 verse 2 on this idea of God forsaking us? It says, in the middle of Second uh, Chronicles chapter 15 verse 2, Howard, it says, the Lord is with you while you be with him. Mm-hmm. So the Lord's only going to be with us if we're with him. It says, if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And so okay. Hebrews 13, 5 says God will never forsake us. Second Chronicles mm-hmm. 15, verse 2 says if we forsake him, he will forsake us. How can okay. both of those passages be true, Howard? Mm-hmm. How can they both be true? They can both be true in this in this way. As long as we're faithful to Christ, to God, mm-hmm. God will never forsake us. He's always going to live up to his end of the bargain. But if we decide to forsake him, then his remember he has said we're going to, he's going to bless us if we obey his law. So he's going to keep that part of the bargain too. If we don't keep his law, he will stop blessing us. He will forsake us if we forsake him. That's made clear by Second Chronicles chapter 15, verse 2. Now, a lot of people don't believe that. They believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, that no matter what mm-hmm. you do, God would never forsake you. This verse says, though, and it's clear, if you forsake him, referring to God, he will forsake you. You see that, Howard? Yeah, I see. Okay. We appreciate you calling. You got any follow-up? Okay. Yeah, that helps me a lot. Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you. Okay. Have a good All evening, right. Howard. Yeah, you too, yeah. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. The number to call if you have a Bible question or comment is 877-655-6755. So we were looking at Isaiah chapter 53 on this idea of Jesus being the Lamb of God. Verse 7 says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. But verse 5, what we were talking about in verse 5 here, it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. I mean, to me, that's kind of like the understatement of the year. Christ wasn't, he was wounded, he was bruised, he was crucified. You know, in our society, in America, we have the death penalty in some states if, uh, but they they have, like in Alabama, it's the electric chair, some states, lethal injection. They're trying to make the death of the criminal uh, as painless as possible. But back then, they were trying to make the death of the criminal as the most excruciating, suffer the most excruciating, uh, excruciating amount of pain as possible. The crucifixion, there was a horrific amount of pain on, on the person who was crucified. You think about Jesus, what he did for us. How much love he showed us. He, had, We might say had it made in heaven. He left that lofty position in heaven, became a man, a servant at that, knowing all the time he's going to have to suffer this torturous, painful death on the cross for us so that we could be saved. He didn't do it to help himself. He did it to help us. He was the Lamb of God. He became that sacrifice voluntarily, willingly, so that we could be forgiven of his sins. Without that, there's no way we could be forgiven. I'm thinking of a passage like Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, 
While I'm turning there, if you have a Bible question or comment, call us at 877-655-6755. Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus said, this is not just within a day of when he's going to die on the cross. He says, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So we know Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. So without the shedding of blood, there's going to be no remission. And Jesus said, I'm going to be the one to shed my blood for the remission of everybody's sins. So what can we learn from those two passages together? That without the death of Christ, we can't be saved. Wouldn't matter how many times we went to church, how many times we read the Bible from cover to cover, how many times we got baptized, how many times we helped a little old lady across the street. What we learn from Matthew 26, 28 and Hebrews 9, 22 is that without the death of Christ, no way we could be saved. No way. We have so much to thank him for, so much to appreciate about what he did for us that we should be willing to serve him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Carl from Alabama, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yeah, you all may have already discussed this, but I came in the middle of it, and I know that you was talking about the baptism, but we know that in uh, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said that all power was given unto him. And so we knew Jesus had the power to forgive. And if you look at Matthew's uh, chapter 9, verse 6, it said that uh, the Son has power on earth to forgive sin, so he can forgive the thief on the cross. And if you look at Mark chapter 2, verse 10, he said the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Again. And what we look at when Jesus was living under the Old Testament, the New Testament didn't come full into law until uh, the Bible said, once the gospel been preached to all the world, then the end will come. That means the end of the Old Testament. So Jesus set the church, church up. He established the church. And once the gospel had been preached to every creature in the world, then everybody on this earth was living on the Christianity. You either have to go down to Christianity or you'll be lost. Carl, thank you for your call. Appreciate those comments, okay? Uh, yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Carl. I, I mentioned when that the first caller called in about Hebrews 9. Let me just read 15 through 17 on this point on the thief on the cross. It says, for this cause, he, talking about Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. And so this is just like with me and my three brothers, four boys. My parents wrote their will out in the 1970s. But but we didn't, and, and, and the, the will said, divide the inheritance between the four boys equally. But we didn't get to inherit anything until my second parent, my mother, died in 2010. Because for the will to go into effect, you have to have the death of the testators. Well, he's drawing upon that and making an analogy in Hebrews 9. Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament. The New Testament does not go into force until after the death of the testator. So the thief lived, and then he was forgiven before Jesus died. And actually, we learn from a passage like Luke chapter 24, that the New Testament, it came into effect after the death of the testator, according to Hebrews 9. In Luke 
24 helps us to see that it came into effect probably on the first day of Pentecost after Jesus died. Luke 24, 47 says in that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Well, that's in Acts chapter 2 when Peter first started preaching. That's when repentance and remission of sins, the New Testament law, went into effect according to Luke 24, 47. That's many days after uh, the thief died. And so the thief didn't have to be baptized for the same reason Moses didn't have to be baptized or or Joshua or Adam and Eve or, or, or Noah or Abraham. They didn't live under the New Testament law, which teaches we have to be baptized to be saved. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved after the thief died. If you would like a free one-hour phone Bible study with me at your convenience, call or text me at 256-682-9753. A free one-hour phone Bible study at your convenience. I'd love to do it with you. Call or text me at 256-682-9753.